0: Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zataran's, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zataran's.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Louisiana has long been known as sportsman's paradise. That fact is so well known, we even proclaim it on our license plates. Although our forests, prairies, and coastal marshes provide excellent hunting and fishing opportunities the scourge of invasive species threatens our native ecosystem. On this week's Louisiana Eats, we're hunting down both land and aquatic creatures who don't belong here, and explore the hunting tradition in the Bayou State and beyond. First, we attend a competition where local chefs present Asian carp in all sorts of inventive ways. Asian carp are huge monster fish currently taking over waterways across America, driving out native species, and even proving deadly to boaters. And then there's the invasive wild boar population destroying our coast. We visit a cook-off event in Violet, Louisiana, where amateur teams present their take on feral hog. There, we meet a father-daughter team for whom hunting is a way of life. And hunting has always been a way of life for Danlin Brennan, too. The Portland, Oregon native claims she's eaten off the forest floor since childhood. We'll learn about the life of a wild forager and then take a trip to Hawaii to meet another father-daughter team who hunt the Pacific Ocean just the way their ancestors did. We're going to eat it to save it, and we're going to eat it to eradicate it on this week's Louisiana Eats. The Gulf of Mexico provides Louisiana restaurants with a dazzling variety of fish that our all-star chefs prepare in inventive and delicious ways. Grouper, flounder, snapper, who could ask for anything more? But what if your favorite chef presented you with an unfamiliar fish that was both delicious and helped solve one of our state's growing environmental problems? Would you give it a try? That's a question that a number of scientists, environmentalists, and chefs have been asking as they work to combat Louisiana's invasive species problem. As part of the National Food and Beverage Invasive Species Project, New Orleans Southern Food and Beverage Museum hosted a cook-off featuring a fish that's becoming a growing menace in the Gulf, Asian carp. Four local chefs were tasked with preparing the invasive fish from fin to plate. WWTV's resident chef Kevin Belton emceed the event.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Best of
2: the Yeah. Now, if, if you all have never had the opportunity to eat this fish, you are in for a treat tonight. The chefs will be delivering a fish. They have one hour to prepare a dish. Also tonight, we're gonna to have a demonstration on exactly how the fish has to be treated and gutted, because it has a few extra bones in it. So enjoy the evening, make their way around,
3: eat, drink, and be a typical Louisianian.
0: As visitors tried free samples, we ducked into our SOFAP studio with one of the scientists, hoping to raise awareness of the Asian carps' effect on our wetlands.
4: My name is Alicia Renfro. I'm a coastal scientist with the National Wildlife Federation so the asian carp it's actually four different species of fish that come mostly from southeast asia they become really big they can average around 50 pounds and they're filter feeders so they go through the environment and they suck up these microscopic plants and animals so they take up the room and they take up the food source and so the other species that would naturally occur here can't thrive like they once did and then with an added bonus Um, at least with the silver carp, they actually jump out of the water. So if you're boating through an area, you could have a 50-pound fish end up in your lap, which is very
0: dangerous. Dangerous and terrifying. Which places in Louisiana is this likely to happen to you?
4: The Mississippi River itself, some of the upper parts of the basin, um, I think now even into the Pearl River, they are pretty thoroughly moving through the freshwater systems of Louisiana these days.
0: How exactly did they swim across the borders?
4: What really happened is they were brought in intentionally in the 70s into aquaculture farms farther up into the um, upper Mississippi River. And they were brought in intentionally because they are filter feeders. And they did that for a little while, and then they got out of their little dammed areas and into the freshwater system. And because they can go through and eat up so much and reproduce so quickly, they began spreading throughout the freshwater systems we have here all the way up the upper Mississippi River, almost into the Great Lakes. The National Wildlife Federation is really trying hard not to let these fish get into the Great Lakes.
0: What are you all doing to try to combat this? How do you get people to eat Asian carp to eradicate them?
4: At the National Wildlife Federation, we do have a focus on creating environments and healthy habitats for the animals and wildlife and fish in our ecosystem and also to connect people. One of the things we've been really focusing in on are innovative ways to control these invasive species. And for many of them, the only way you can get rid of them is to actually go in and physically take them out. And when you have something like the Asian carp, you can eat it. So why not eat it?
0: So at this point, are you involving chefs in order to educate the public so that the fishermen might start catching them and eating them?
4: Yeah, that's the goal. Uh, we It's a fish that people don't think about eating, and it's a very big fish, and it can be a great fish, especially in the hands of some of our New Orleans chefs.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, just remember tonight, this is a fish that does have off So just be careful.
0: Another expert we spoke with at the event was Chef Philippe Parola, who has dedicated his career to the concept that the Asian carp problem can be solved by eating them.
5: My name is Chef Philippe. I'm out of Baton Rouge. When I came in Louisiana in 1980 from Paris, I discovered the wildlife and the fishing and the hunting and the beautiful outdoor in Louisiana. And then I discover about this invasive species when the uh, alligator became a nuisance in the early 80s, and the black tip shark, and then the nutria, the famous nutria, and that's when the wildlife and fishery contacted me. We launched a three years nutria promotion, and then today I'm working with the um, Asian Corp. I just like to take uh, natural resources like this and turn it to food, um, like the Asian Corp, for instance. You know, you got the government spending 500 million trying to resolve this particular problem. Uh, scientifically, but they can't. There is no eradication, and um, I-, I think it would be great to put Louisiana on the spotlight by saying, "Look, we have the solution, and the solution is simple. It's a practical one, not a scientific one. Is to turn those fish into food product that consumers will love to have. So you're going to create a ton of jobs with that. Number one, you're going to boost the economy. You're going to harvest those fish on a daily basis. I guarantee you, if you put a price tag on it. Our friend, the kunai on the bayou, they're going to go and go after it. That's the key. It really is. Fish is food. You know that, right?
0: Right. That's and all. this is a good fish to eat.
5: Well, it is, absolutely. There is no such a thing as a bad fish. In uh, 1990, I got invited to tour the seafood market in Tokyo, the largest seafood market in the world. When we did that, we went there by 3 o'clock in the morning when the boat arrived, okay? They unload all the seafood, the fish, and they got fish from all over the place. What well, they drag into those nets, go to that market. And I'm going to tell you, i see seen some fish i never seen before. They were so ugly. It was like, what? You eat that stuff? Well, let me tell you something, puppy. After two hours, all of those fish were gone. Lesson to learn. There is no such a thing than a bad fish. All right, now let's talk about this, the Asian carp. It's called a carp, number one. So who wants to eat carp in America? We're spoiled here, girl. I know we are. Big in time. Louisiana, especially. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's the first thing. Number two, it's invasive species. When you classify that as invasive species, oh my God, we don't want to touch it. So when we want to attempt to touch that, the biggest problem with this fish is the bone structure. <laughs> I never seen such a complex bone structure on any fish. So when I encountered this fish six years ago in Louisiana for the first time, I went and gave it to some of my dear friends and I wanted to do a test trial to see if that fish hole, they could work with it. Every one of them came back with too difficult to work with, you know, too time consuming, and that was a dead end. So what we did over six years time is we developed a way to remove the bones and make fish products, like fish cakes, like we're gonna serve tonight, be able to mass process those fish cakes and harvest those fish on a commercial basis. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds per day. That will make the difference. That will create thousands of jobs. That will boost the economy. Our policymakers, because it's not a problem yet, they are not doing anything. And it's okay, but been active into the fishing, recreational fisheries, understanding the value of the outdoor in Louisiana, our beauty about our swamp and bayou. As I can tell you I got two young daughters and I will sure not let that fish come in and destroying all of this. This is what it's all about. It really is.
0: The four chefs who participated in the cook-off hailed from Carmo, Alma, spotted cat food and spirits, and Lucy's Retired Surfer's Bar and Restaurant. Each chef was provided with their own Asian carp, and (laughs) let me tell you, these things are huge. Not to mention slimy and ugly. Watching as the chefs prepared these monsters into something edible was a sight to see. We spoke with three of them at their stations to better understand their experience with carp.
6: My name is Dana Hahn from Carmo uh, restaurant down in the warehouse district. And we are preparing this evening a dish called Lomo Saltado, which is a Peruvian, kind of Peruvian version of pepper steak. A little bit more interesting than your average pepper steak because it has aji amarillo, has a bunch of other fresh peppers and tomatoes and all kinds of herbs in it. And then of course, we're using tonight the uh, silver Asian carp which will provide an interesting twist.
0: Have you ever cooked with silver Asian carp before? Um, other than the test
6: fish that they sent over the other day, this is the first time. So. What's your
0: impression of it? Uh,
6: I think it's really great. I think that um, you know, there's there's uh, definitely a, a little trick in terms of learning to uh, fillet it out so that you actually get a good yield out of the fish. But aside from that, the the uh, the flesh is really firm. Uh, it has a really nice texture, a really nice, um, fairly mild flavor. I think that it, it you know, we, I, I did it fried, I tried it grilled, uh, I tried it in this in this walked dish, um, so I, it, it seems to be very versatile.
7: Hi, this is Chef Melissa Arigio from Sober
1: Catering
2: and Alma Pop-Up. I have found out that this is actually a very... Um, Intensive processed fish,
7: (laughs) it's not like your regular fish that you fillet nice and smooth. Um, There's a lot of bones embedded in the meat and uh, to clean up, you have to deal with a rib cage and everything, so um, techniques helps,
0: but then after that, it's just intuition. And what are you making with it today? Today, I'm making uh, fish tacos.
1: Hey, how you doing? I'm uh, Rob Clement from Spotted Cat Food and Spirits on St. Claude. What we did today is a carp croquette with Fra Diablo with a, a, a tarragon creme fraiche. Um, overall, it was a pretty, pretty interesting experience working with the carp. Um, it's got a lot of bones in it. So, <laughs> so that's kind of how I ended up doing uh, the croquettes. It just seemed for this number of plates uh, and the time limit for the judges, it just seemed to uh, make a better product if we just broke down the fish all the way and kind of put it back together, something flavorful that, that made sense.
0: If you were to compare it to another kind of fish we're familiar with, what would you compare it to?
1: <laughs> Actually, so the, the, the skeletal structure of it is very similar to a tilapia. Um, I worked in a seafood market for a while and they have actually like a rib cage that like bows out whereas a lot of fish it's kind of flat and and it's really easier going one knife stroke down the fish um so that's different than a lot of fish and and it's i mean it can be challenging i've never really encountered a fish with as as many bones throughout it honestly i mean just being honest but to me it was pretty uh pretty much like a blank canvas with the flavor it's not very assertive, it's not something that like is overly fishy to where you, you're kind of stuck doing certain things. So it was, it was pretty cool to work with.
0: A crowd mobbed chef Jessica Richardson station reaching for free plates. She poached the fish to remove its tiny little bones before constructing the flesh into a carp cake. She then battered and fried the cakes finishing each with a slice of Creole tomato on top. After sampling the dishes, the three judges, one of whom was me, declared Jessica Richardson's fish cake the winner. Attendees went home satiated, and the event was deemed a success. But I have to admit, I'm still left with the burning question. What about you? Would you be willing to try some, Asian carp? When we come back from a short break, we journey to Hawaii's Garden Isle to meet a fisherman whose family's casting traditions go back countless generations. Stay tuned. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Rouse's Markets, from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Ralph's on the Park, overlooking City Park's ancient oaks, serving locally sourced Gulf seafood, meats, and farm fresh produce all presented with a global spin by Chef Chip Flanagan. Lunch, dinner, Saturday and Sunday brunch, and private parties at 900 City Park Avenue in Mid-City. We have a story from one of the most remote places on earth, Hawaii. Producer Sarah Holtz took a trip to the island of Kauai and met James Sarmi, a fisherman who casts about in the traditional Hawaiian way.
2: Aloha, my name is James Sarmi, I'm from Kauai, Kapa'a, Kauai.
0: I met James
8: on a typical gorgeous afternoon in Kapa'a, a village on the east shore of Kauai. Though we met on the main street, Kuhio Highway, we were only steps away from the beach. I quickly learned that the ocean is never far from James's mind. He described what it was like to go shore fishing with his family when he was young.
2: I remember, you know, going with my dad and we're going to the beach and he's got his net in his car and he's got his polarized glasses on and looking into the ocean and then looking for the school of fish, you know, and then he goes down and sets his net up and you know you're kind of excited to see the throw and he throw his net and he come up with this fish and you know you run there you help him pick it up in the ocean and then we would come on land and then take it all out of the net and and do it again
8: hawaiian fishing methods vary from bow fishing to diving to casting out with a small net this army family's fishing tradition goes back countless generations and James has good reason to believe it will continue well into the future.
2: You know, I'm older now. All my kids know how to fish. And I've even taught my seven-year-old daughter. She's she's diving with me. I took her about two months ago. And my older son, who's 26, got a, a taco and... And then he for kill him, we bite it between the eyes, and she was like, "Oh, what is he doing?" And she was just so amazed, you know, to watch all of this going on and so it's it's something we teach in the family.
8: The tradition holds strong, but James also sees several threats to the practice, from restrictive state laws to overfishing.
2: You know, it's not as abundant as it was before. It's kind of actually it's a little sad to see it disappearing to be honest, you know. You know, it's something I'm teaching, but I can see it's fading away.
8: When did you first start to notice it was disappearing?
2: Um, I'm actually actually from the Big Island, and I went back to the Big Island to a spot that I was raised at and fish all day, and we caught nothing. You know, and seven years ago, I was diving there, and, you know, we would catch all this fish, and we was there all day, and we caught nothing, and kind of... Heartbroken, it's not there anymore, you know. And I didn't get to jump in and dive and look at the coral and the and the ocean, you know. We was fishing with Pose at the time, and but it's not as abundant as it was before.
8: Do you know of any uh, conservation efforts on the island?
2: You know, I I I know there's certain areas where there are conservation efforts, but you know, I think I think to be honest, I think with social media and a lot of people do fishing and diving, and they like to post all these things they catch. Plenty of them release it, but I see on social media where they catch like 20 to 30 parrotfish. You know, it's like you can't eat that much, you know. I know growing up, we would catch what we eat, you know, what we need to eat, and my dad would stop. And, you know, and as a, as an adult, as I came an adult, I remember... You know, when I would go dive, I would ask the neighbors what kind of fish they would want to eat. I would go catch fish, give them their share, keep my share, and that's what I'll teach my kids. We we get what we need. That's it. But I think nowadays, you look at social media, everybody's posting. Everybody wants the bigger fish. Everybody wants more and more. And I think, to me, that's my personal opinion. It's kind of disappearing, you know.
8: Facing this reality is not easy, as James still takes his father's wisdom very much to heart.
2: Growing up, you respected the ocean. You know, I remember my dad saying, um, don't turn your back on the ocean. When I was younger and a little bit, we like to say, kalohi, a um, little bit trouble troublemaker, you know, where I thought I could do anything, um, I, got, I got dragged in the ocean one time, and I never forget that, and I learned a good lesson that day. You know, I respect the ocean, and I know the power of the ocean.
8: With its dense rainforests, Kauai is one of the wettest places on Earth. Thus its nickname, the Garden Island.
2: Um, One thing I like about the islands is how, like, when the sugarcane plant's flower comes out, as, as locals we know, that's the time to get octopus or taco, and that's a good time to go and look for it. Also, when the guava falls, different kind of fish come out, and there's some of the signs where you can tie the land to the ocean. Um, there's, there's some of the plants that smell like certain fishes out in the ocean, or even some of the leaf of a plant that look exactly like a fish. Native Hawaiians used to tie all the land with the ocean together as one.
8: While the fishing tradition is becoming endangered, James' says his pull to the ocean is as strong as it's ever been.
2: You know, my daughter, as I said, she's seven, but at two, I had her going underwater already. We like to say it's it's in our blood.
0: James Sarmi, fisherman on the island of Kauai. And our Louisiana Eats producer, Sarah Holtz.
3: When she's on...
0: The states of Hawaii and Louisiana have more in common than you'd think. At the age of two, James Sarmy's daughter began diving with her dad on the hunt for fish. In the southwest corner of our state, another daughter began hunting animals with her dad at a very young age also.
3: My name is Megan Dragon. I am 18 years old and me and my dad's been hunting since, ever since I was a little kid. We'll get to Megan and her
0: dad in a minute, but first, some background on how we came to meet them. The Louisiana Eats crew was in Violet, Louisiana, attending a wild boar cook-off event held by a variety of coastal preservation organizations. You see, the wild boars who roam Louisiana threaten the integrity of our levees by rooting them up. There's many a conservationist working to replant vegetation to preserve our eroding coast, who tells stories of returning to the planting site a week later only to find all the new plants uprooted and gone, the work of those voracious wild hogs. Half a dozen amateur cook teams battled it out, each presenting their own take on the invasive wild boar. Because once again, to save our coastline, we've got to eat them to eradicate them.
2: Who are these for? Do you guys want to try them?
1: Our contribution was the smoked boar jambalaya and we're pretty happy with the results so far, so. It's all marinated in red wine, white wine, thyme, rosemary, any
0: season you could buy a or steal is put into this pig. Eat a boar, they don't tell you land up. <laughs> Among the teams was the Chalmette Owls, a group of high school students taking part in the ProStart culinary program, led by Elena Hodges.
8: We're making an Asian taco. We did the, uh, we smoked the pork overnight. We did a nice little Asian rub. We topped it with pickled cucumbers and carrots, a little bit of green
0: onion. And- Despite being beginners, the Shalmet Owls had a slight advantage over the competition. They already had some experience cooking wild boar, thanks to a hunter within their own ranks, 18-year-old Megan Dragon.
8: We've been practicing. She brought in three wild boar legs. She deboned them. She brought them in. She seasoned them up. I smoked one. We did two more in the the oven. We braised them. And the kids loved it. They
0: loved it. Megan spoke with us about her avocation for game hunting, beginning with her involvement in the cook-off. (laughs) let's talk about hunting pigs that's really wild that you all were going to be in this competition but because of you everybody
3: got to practice tell me about how that came about oh when miss elena came up to me and asked me if i wanted to be in the contest i was like yeah i love hunting i love hogs i love doing all of that i love cooking especially and bringing that it Mind blown to my teacher. She's like, You really did bring it? I said, Yeah, I brought it. It's cold and everything, so you have to like be careful with it and make sure it doesn't spill or anything. But seeing other people's reactions about me bringing that out, doing stuff with it, people just asking me questions, it's, it's really amazing. Like, I'm me, I'm thinking, Oh, yeah, everybody's like me, but no, nobody's like me. <laughs> no, no,
0: nobody's <laughs> much like you. What do you like the most about deer hunting?
3: I like sitting in the stand, quiet. Everything's all, it looks kind of like dead. And then when the sun comes up and, and the light hits it, everything comes alive and stuff starts moving around. And then you start hearing stuff, like right when you walk into the stand, oh, you get that, it's just a rush feeling. The one time, when the first time I shot my deer, it was with my dad and we had like a very old, old stand. And I remember, just right when the sun came out, it was just one little glare of sunlight came out. The deer just popped right up out of there. When you get the scope right on it, and you take a big old deep breath in and out, slow deep breaths, and you just fire. And when you see you hit it, it's it's amazing feeling. Like you're shaking all over the place. You're saying, "Oh my god, I just did this. This is exciting. It's my first deer." And come to find out, the deer that I shot, it only had one antler, so I call it my unicorn deer. <laughs> oh, I loved it. It was such a, it was a rush feeling just doing that. It's kind of hard to wake up in the morning, but once you get that first little wake up, and like, oh yeah, I'm going out in the woods, I'm going to have fun, and I'm going to be with my dad, pretty much. And that's what I love about going with them, cause He's my dad. Like, I'm his little girl. I have an older sister. It's just me and her. And I'm the little baby in the family, so that's what I love about it.
0: Not far from Megan and her cook team station was her father, Daryl. After Megan introduced us, I asked him for his take on the sport of hunting and his daughter's growing passion for the pursuit.
9: I'm uh, Daryl Dragon. I'm Megan's father.
0: Tell me about where you're from and and why... Hunting, fishing, why all of that is important to you and why you're passing it on to your kids.
9: Well, um, I'm born and raised in Plaquemine Parish. My wife is from St. Benoit Parish, 12 miles away. We, was, um, we were what you want to call high school sweethearts. All my life, my brothers and myself, we hunt and fish because we were born raised up on a farm mostly. And when they were coming up, I, you know, when they were little, they wanted to go. They always wanted to go with me. So, You know, there's some days when it's real cold and that you can't take them. But when they were little, I would take them in the stand and put them in there and they watch. And then as they got older, I want to go, I want to hunt. I want to shoot a deer and different things. So, you know, you teach them the right and wrongs. You don't teach them, oh, you just go out here and it's whatever, and you just kill everything that walks. And we don't do that. We only kill two deers a year for the house. Everything we kill, we eat. There's nothing that we don't, we don't just go out and slaughter stuff. We make sure you know, we eat it and we process it all ourselves, we debone it, we cook it, we do everything with it. We're even fishing, we do the same thing with fishing. that I was born and raised like that. My grandfather was something instilled in us and whatever we caught or killed, we ate. You know, Raising up on a farm, that's the normal thing you do.
0: I asked Darrell if he could recall the feelings he experienced as he watched his daughter, Megan, make her first kill he became silent for a moment and i spied a tear in the proud father's
9: eye well it's um it's kind of emotional because they excited and they get nervous and when they my both daughters when they shot it was like it was, it was like perfect the deer didn't walk far, it kind of just dropped right there. And I was like, then after the fact that their nerves set in, they get all excited and they're jumping up and down. Of course, you know, you got to grab the gun. And you secure everything first because they're all excited and jumping up and down. It's pretty cool. And then you, you know, you teach them, you got to let them calm down. And then you teach safety after that. And then that's the biggest thing I always preach with them, you know, safety, gun safety, and everything. So, all these people talk about guns and, and activists and all that. I'm like, look, I was born and raised from a little kid with guns around us. The only time we used a gun was for hunting. That was it. You never touched it otherwise. And that's the same thing we instill in them. So maybe my grandkids, I'll be able to teach my grandkids to hunt. To hunt. Who knows?
0: Megan Dragon, 18-year-old hunter, and her father, Daryl Dragon. In 1910, U.S. Representative Robert Broussard of Louisiana introduced what would become known as the American Hippo Bill to Congress. What did this bill aim to accomplish? Stay tuned, and we'll tell you about this bizarre bit of food history when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen and Zataran's. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcasts yet? Visit poppytooker.com to subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Here's this week's culinary quiz question. Brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What was the goal of the American Hippo Bill, introduced to Congress in 1910? To get an understanding of this bizarre bit of Louisiana food history, we have to go back to 1884. That year, New Orleans hosted its first World's Fair, also known as the World Industrial and Cotton Centennial. More than a million visitors descended on what is now Audubon Park to see exhibits from all over the world. Those who stopped by the Japanese pavilion received as a parting gift an ornamental plant with lavender blossoms called water hyacinth. While it may not look very intimidating, this aquatic plant native to the Amazon River Basin is actually an aggressive invader that rapidly covers whole waterways. Soon after its introduction, water hyacinth was spanning across South Louisiana, choking bayous, killing fish, and impeding shipping. The problem continued for decades. Even the U.S. War Department joined the eradication efforts, dumping oil all over the plants, but to no effect it seemed like the state had exhausted all of its options. That is, until 1910. At the turn of the 20th century, a rapidly growing population was straining America's meat supply. Native animals like the buffalo were all but extinct, and ranchers couldn't keep up with the nation's demands for meat. Enter the hippo. Following the advice of a pair of big game hunters, Congressman Robert Broussard of New Iberia proposed an ingenious solution to both Louisiana's invasive hyacinth problem and the American meat shortage. Broussard sponsored the American Hippo Bill, which, if approved, would set aside federal funds for the importation of the humble hippopotamus. Imagine bayous full of hippos munching on those pesky hyacinth flowers and American tables supplied with an exotic new source of protein. Hippo meat? You bet. No less a big-game expert than Teddy Roosevelt himself endorsed the idea, and the New York Times salivated over what they dubbed Lake Cow Bacon sound too far-fetched? It almost came to pass. Literally. Broussard's bill gained a lot of notoriety, but ultimately fell just short of passage. Louisiana's hyacinth problem persists, and the only hippos I've seen lately are living it up at the Audubon Zoo. I'm Poppy Tooker, and I don't know about you, but I am glad to say that Hippo Gumbo is not
5: real Louisiana E.
0: Sometimes, the more you love something, the more you risk destroying it. That's certainly true when hunting for sport, but what about our connection to flora rather than fauna? For a forager in Portland, Oregon, the consequences of gathering can sometimes be hard to measure.
7: My name is Danlin Brennan, and I am a forager and been eating off the forest floor since I was a child. When I go out to... to wildcraft, right, or to harvest. I go alone. I'm pretty much camouflaged. I hide, basically, in the woods and I sneak around. So I, I go early in the morning, um, which is so peaceful. I, I love it. And it's really personal to me, actually. It's it's an experience that means a lot to me. So yeah, I have a lot of people asked to come along and it's not that I don't want to enjoy my time with them, but it's it's kind of my own thing to sneak around in the woods.
0: (laughs) Foraging is a lifelong calling for Danlin. Her passion is clear, but there's also a tension that runs through her voice, a desire to keep her methods and harvest locations hidden. That's because the more people who know about her world of wildcraft, the smaller it becomes.
7: It is challenging finding a place where I can forage, and that's usually why I stay so secretive about it. Um, Because yes, there's public property uh, that I can find, uh, but there's also a lot of private property. And I have in the past asked owners of a property if if I could harvest from there. A lot of times they look at me funny or tell me no. I've even had a a lady tell me that she was going to sick her dogs on me if I keep collecting those violets. So... (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm cautious, uh, especially when it comes to bringing groups of people to a location. So um, I lead by example. I don't just go and start ripping things out of the ground. That's not not my way.
0: Used to be foragers were people who went out into the wild and found food. Now, high-end fine restaurants hire people whose job title is forager. So tell us what it means to you to be a forager? I always thought it was so normal.
7: You know, growing up, I, I would have to give the credit to Polly Ivins who was a woman who introduced me to eating um, from nature. So I, I was introduced to a lot of uh, different edible plants as a child, so I thought it was normal that everybody um, would just eat from
0: the forest. Danlon's connection to foraging traces back to early childhood. I asked her to take us back to her earliest memories on the forest floor. Around five, six, seven years old, grade school.
7: Uh, I do remember getting lost in the woods with my younger sister and her telling me that she was hungry. You know,
0: what are we going to do? We're lost in the woods. I was like, don't worry, we can eat the dandelions.
7: (laughs) I remember saying things like that to her.
0: Though dandelions can sometimes save an afternoon in the woods, being a small child in the wilderness comes with its share of scraped knees and sometimes worse.
7: I'm surprised I'm alive, actually. <laughs> I've had a lot of uh, close calls.
0: It is wildcraft, after all. For Danlin, foraging is a practice with deep roots. She considers her work to be part of a greater lineage.
7: And it's our ancestors, of course, because that's that's what we did. And, and you know, like in modern times, we can go to the store and get whatever we want. Um, you know, we forget about these things, but I think it moves people so much because there's this deep memory that resurfaces, and whether it reminds them of a specific person or not, um, I think that memory is in everybody. It's in it's in our DNA. You know that that we have this deep relationship with plants. Um, Recently, I was on an an herb walk introducing people to plants in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, afterwards, I had a young gentleman come up to me and he just, he was so beautiful, kind of like expressing his gratitude uh, for doing this. And he didn't say anything specific about, you know, as a person that this reminded him of, but it moved him a lot. And and he didn't really know why. And he was just so thankful that I, I... for me, like, I, you just walked with me through the woods, so <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah, it means a lot to people, and that's what I think is really rewarding.
0: While Danlin does occasionally lead a flock of fledgling foragers on expeditions, for her, the smaller the group, the better. I would love to take a
7: group of one person with me. <laughs> <laughs> that would be ideal, where I can really have an intimate time with them and explain to them kind of my process which is intimate and might be funny, but I, it's almost conversational with the plants um, when I go out and I'm looking for a specific, I almost want to call it like a person. It's, it's a, an individual, this plant that I'm looking for or that I'm going to, you know, take for myself or for other people to make into medicine or for food. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a, a big deal. So I, I like being with maybe one person, two people to kind of show them how intimate the process actually is.
0: I imagine that you must also have a sort of pull and and take on this because if you teach too many people about these things, it could wipe out everything that's growing naturally that you're depending on. Do you feel that tension and how do you handle that? Absolutely. You got it. Yeah. I do feel
7: that tension. Um, I, I understand people are excited. I don't think that people have ill intentions and people are excited, they want to go harvest, but I think education helps a lot and especially educating people when they're young, educating groups of people who maybe wouldn't naturally be exposed to these things um, is really important to me too. So I don't wanna make it into a trendy thing. I I wanna reach people who need it. I don't know how else to say that. and so I, I do work with the Oregon Food Bank, where I volunteer as an uh, instructor gardening for low-income communities. So I like introducing people to the plants where they have a lot of, when they have a lot of respect for it. It's a give and take. It's not just take, take, take. And us humans, we, we love to take. And uh, it's funny. I've had dreams where I'm the one that's taking, and I'm the one that is gathering all these things, and somebody comes out in my dream and it's like, hey you know, don't do that. You realize that you're being very selfish. And <laughs> so it's definitely in my, in my mind that I'm afraid of doing that and I'm afraid of exposing things and, and making it something that someone could abuse. So if I am going to introduce people to this, I really stress the responsibility that you have to take on when going into these wild areas and, and taking from the earth that way.
0: Want to get in touch with Danlin to learn how to wildcraft yourself? That's not so easy. With so much of her time spent under a canopy of trees, you probably won't be surprised to learn that she's routinely off the grid.
7: I'm not that easy to find. Um, If you're hiding in the forest, (laughs) I guess not. I guess not, but it looks like I'm going to have to expose myself at some point. Um, You can find me online, my... (laughs) Um, my name I go by, a lot of people know me online, is Dirtfish, which is funny um, because I do think of myself as kind of swimming through the dirt, right? I'm swimming through life, like in the dirt. Uh, so, And I, I find the dirt to be beautiful. That's where everything comes from. So, um, you know, I know a lot of people know me by the name Dirt. That's actually a nickname of of mine.
0: Oh, you don't look like your nickname is Dirt. And it's so funny
7: because people do. They think (laughs) it's a bad name. And I'm like, no, but everything beautiful comes from the dirt. What are you talking about? It's
0: really funny. Really good dirt has
7: a really wonderful scent. Yes, it does. Exactly. And good dirt um, gives us really healthy plants and vegetables and and then those healthy vegetables and plants then give us healthy animals and humans and so there's this connection again like i'm saying that for some reason now people don't it it doesn't come naturally to honor the dirt right but i do all the time um so people find me to be a bit funny that's probably why i try to stay out of the spotlight because i always have to explain myself (laughs)
0: Portland-based forager Danlin Brennan, also known as Dirtfish. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you can hear our new Quick Bites podcast and also order a personalized copy of my new book, The Pascal's Minnelli Cookbook. You'll find a full list of personal appearances and scheduled signings on the website, too, as well as directions for how to find us. If you've missed an episode of Louisiana Eats, you can hear today's show or catch up on previous editions anytime online at itsneworleans.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Rouse's Markets, Camellia Brand Beans, and from Don Seafood, where the Landry family has been serving real Louisiana Eats since 1934. Visit Don Seafood at one of their six southern Louisiana locations. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and from Tableau. Brunch and dinner daily with outdoor balcony dining overlooking Jackson Square. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch in the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Sarah Holtz and Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eat studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.